Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hey everyone, Craig Baird here. Before I begin today's story, I want to take a moment and ask that you check me out on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. There are several tiers with great benefits, from ad-free content to t-shirts and other cool stuff. And if you're a fan of Canadian History X, make sure you check out my other shows, From John to Justin and Canada, A Yearly Journey. And don't forget, you can also donate directly to the show at www.canadaehx.com. It helps keep this show going. Alright, on with the show. On a warm, quiet afternoon, Ottawa residents were preparing for the last long weekend of the summer. Ottawa, on Friday, August 29th, 1958, seemed like a perfect day until 4.12pm when the city was rocked by an explosion. Dishes shattered as they fell off the shelves, windows shook and rattled to the point of breaking. A 45-year-old man collapsed on his veranda from the shock of the blast. The switchboards of the Ottawa Citizen and the city's emergency services lit up like Christmas trees as calls came in to find out what happened. Had a factory exploded? Was it an earthquake or a prelude to a Russian nuclear attack? On the ground, they tried to determine where the explosion came from, but they should have looked up. I'm Craig Baird, this is Canadian History X, and today we are feeling the need for speed as we break the sound barrier and jet off on a journey on the Avro Arrow. The explosion that rocked Ottawa happened 45,000 feet above the capital as test pilot Jan Zurakowski flew the experimental Avro Aero fighter jet faster than the speed of sound, causing a sonic boom that shook the city. It was a revolutionary jet, and within six months, it would be dead. And one phrase has echoed ever since. Deef killed the arrow. I have seen that comment dozens, if not hundreds of times. Anytime I post something about Prime Minister John Diefenbaker on social media, you can bet someone is going to write that. Diefenbaker has become the focus of all blame for the sudden cancellation of the Avro Aero in 1958, but the story is deeper and more complicated than that. And to tell any good story, you have to start at the beginning. Aircraft played a critical role in the Allied victory during the Second World War, and Canada was central in getting those planes in the sky. Engineers like Elsie McGill oversaw the construction of hundreds of aircraft that would fly over the English Channel, while Canada's Commonwealth Air Training Plan prepared tens of thousands of pilots. Far from the reach of German bombers, Canadian factories were the perfect place to produce planes. And in 1942, the government created the Crown Corporation Victory Aircraft Limited. Located near what is Toronto Pearson International Airport today, the Malton factory operated by Victory Aircraft was given blueprints in a Lancaster MK-1, a British bomber with the hopes of producing a new aircraft that could deliver bigger payloads at longer ranges. The factory got to work assembling the Avro Lancaster MKX heavy bomber, and it was one of the most complex aircraft ever created, with 500,000 manufacturing operations involved in creating 55,000 separate components. It took only 16 months to go from blueprints to the first test flight, which impressed the management at Avro in the United Kingdom. The UK wanted more bombers, and Victory Aircraft were happy to provide them. Production ramped up on the aircraft, with a factory workforce of 10,000 people, one quarter of which were women. 
Eventually, their efforts produced at the astounding rate of one aircraft per day. And by the end of the war, the factory had built a variety of planes including 3,197 Avro Ansons, 430 Avro Lancasters, 6 Avro Lancastrians, an Avro Lincoln, and an Avro York. On November 11, 1945, Victory Aircraft ceased production and the Canadian government sold the factory to Hawker Siddeley Group. That company used the factory for their new subsidiary, AV Row Canada, which would eventually become Avro Canada. The war effort trained thousands of Canadians to produce high-quality aircraft and a highly skilled workforce, so it's no surprise that in 1947, the Avro XC-100 became Canada's first jet fighter and it hit the skies for the first time on January 19, 1950. Designed by Avro, it was later renamed the CF-100 Canuck, and eventually 692 of them were built and entered into the service with the Royal Canadian Air Force in NATO bases in Europe and North America. On December 18, 1952, test pilot Jan took a CF-100 Canuck MK-4 prototype to Mach 1.1 as he dove from 14 kilometers above ground and broke the sound barrier. It resulted in the first straight-winged jet aircraft to achieve controlled supersonic flight, and while the CF-100 was an excellent aircraft, it was clear by the time it entered service that more power was needed, and Avro was going to be the one to give it. If you've seen the 2023 Oscar-winning movie Oppenheimer, you know the United States beat the world in developing the atomic bomb and used it twice on Japan, effectively ending the Second World War. This led to an arms race, and the Soviet Union caught up on August 29, 1949, when they tested their first nuclear bomb. The two countries pushed science further, and the atomic bomb became hydrogen bombs, which were more powerful, flexible, and cleaner than A-bombs. Throughout the early 1950s, the Cold War escalated as the United States and the Soviet Union built up nuclear arsenals, and as the threat of nuclear war increased, Canada sat geographically right in the middle of the two superpowers. To detect Soviet bombers flying over the Arctic, the United States and Canada developed early warning radar systems. The Pine Tree Line along the United States-Canada border was built in 1951 and was the first coordinated system for early detection. Two more radio lines, the Mid-Canada Line and the Distant Early Warning Line, were developed in 1956 and 1957. Now that the United States and Canada had the power to detect approaching Soviet bombers, they just needed a way to intercept them and enter the CF-105. By the early 1950s, Avro Canada was a leader in aerospace and a major contributor to the Canadian economy as it employed thousands of people and its supply chain employed several thousand more. The Royal Canadian Air Force was looking for supersonic missile-armed jets that could combat Soviet bombers. The Canuck was fine but it was ineffective against new bombers that could fly faster for longer distances. From 1952 to 1953, Avro and the RCAF discussed creating a new, revolutionary aircraft for a two-person crew with a range of 550 kilometers at low speed and 370 kilometers at high speed. It needed to be able to reach a cruising speed of Mach 1.5 or 1.5 times the speed of sound and maintain that speed at 21,000 meters while being able to handle turns of 2 Gs with no loss of speed. Within 5 minutes, the aircraft had to go from engine start to an altitude of 15 kilometers at Mach 1.5 without losing energy. 
and this was a tall order, but Avro Canada was up for the task because they had some of the best aerospace mines in the world at their disposal. In May 1953, Avro submitted their C-105 design, and two months later, the RCAF accepted the proposal, giving them the go-ahead to start the project. And at first, it would be limited in its overall scope, as Avro was provided $27 million for flight modeling. But after the Soviets tested a hydrogen bomb in August 1953, the budget for the Avro CF-105, or Aero as it became known, was upgraded to $260 million, and the RCAF requested five Aero Mach 1 flight test aircraft, the first version of the aircraft, followed by 35 Aero Mark IIs, the upgraded second version of the aircraft. Avro had the money, now they needed to build these new aircraft in a very short amount of time. On September 30th, 1953, Avro purchased a jet plant near Malton, Ontario for $17.5 million to allow them to build a complete aircraft from airframe to jet engines in a Canadian factory. A spokesperson stated, Never before has a Canadian company been capable of building a plane from top to bottom. We have always had to buy various parts for the aircraft. Now we can design and put one together on our hook. Born in Winnipeg, Avro President Crawford Gordon Jr. had been the leader of Canada's wartime defence production under C.D. Howe, the Minister of Munitions and Supply, during the Second World War. Considered one of Canada's greatest business minds, he took over as President and General Manager in October 1951 and helped solve several problems in the development and production of the CF-100. Working alongside him was James C. Floyd. He was born in England and worked for A.V. Rowe before moving to Canada in 1946. By 1952, he was Avro Canada's chief engineer. To meet the strict deadlines set by the RCAF, the Avro Aero program changed how it created and tested prototypes. Typically, a small number of prototypes were built and flown, which was time-consuming and delayed building of production models. Instead, Avro set up a production line first and tested production models rather than prototypes. And as tests were complete, Avro could incorporate changes into the design, and full production would start immediately. But before they did that, they had to create nine free-flight models. These models were smaller than the actual Aero, and were mounted onto rocket boosters to test how they reacted at supersonic speeds. Six models were tested over Lake Ontario, and two were tested over the Atlantic Ocean. The tests proved successful, and only a few design changes were needed mostly focused on wing profile and positioning. This is when the first rumblings of budget cuts reached Avro offices. As early as 1953, senior Army and Navy officials were questioning the program because funds were being diverted to the Air Force. Regardless of the rumors though, Avro was moving full steam ahead on the Arrow. In October 1954, R.K. Anderson, Avro's assistant industrial engineer manager, spoke in front of 250 scientists, engineers and technicians at an international meeting and stated their new program would be ready by 1956. He didn't name the arrow, but most believe that's what he was talking about. By 1955, news reports filtered out about a new aircraft being developed by Avro, and on September 16th, the Regina Leader Post reported that the new aircraft may not have a pilot due to the stresses of such high speeds. It said, At 1500 miles an hour, a plane is approaching the heat barrier in which ordinary metals such as steel tend to give way. 
The heat is caused by friction between air and the aircraft. It is believed the pilot will have little to do than take it off and land it, and even this may be done automatically. In February 1956, the Royal Canadian Air Force demanded changes to the fire control system so they would be similar to the firing system in development with the Americans on their Sparrow missile program. The RCAF felt this system was more accurate and a better fit for the Aero. Avro objected to implementing this new fire system because further testing would delay unveiling the plane and increase the costs. But the RCF stood firm and the new system was developed for the Aero. By the time the Aero was ready to debut, it was unlike anything anyone had ever seen. Weighing in at 20,000 kilograms, it had a 15.2 meter wingspan and was capable of speeds faster than any jet in its class. With a top speed of 2,104 kilometers, it could fly from Vancouver, British Columbia to St. John's, Newfoundland in just over two hours. It could also reach nearly twice the speed of sound and an altitude of 53,000 feet. The refrigeration system of the plane was also so powerful it could produce 23 tons of ice per day, if one wanted it to produce ice that is. Inside there were 17 kilometers of wiring and a control mechanism strong enough to lift six elephants standing in an elevator. Now completed, it was time for its big unveiling, and the day turned out to be one of the most important days in human history, but not because of the arrow. Major events can sometimes be overshadowed by another momentous event on the same day. This is what happened on the morning of June 25, 2009 when 1970s icon Farrah Fawcett died of cancer. As news of her death spread 12 hours later, Michael Jackson died. News of his death caused websites to crash, Google believed it was under attack by hackers, and global internet traffic increased by 20%. It was a major event overshadowed by another, which is what happened on October 4, 1957. On a warm autumn day, 12,000 gathered at the Avro plant to see the Avro Arrow emerge from the hangar, and the paint was still wet. Ian Austin, a journalist in attendance, said, It swept back delta wings and early electronic flight controls gave it the look of tomorrow, as did its blinding white, matte black and dayglow orange paint. Air Vice Marshal Hugh Campbell said, The Aero, including its missiles, flight trail and fire control systems, we believe will become a very important component of North American air defense. Everyone wanted to touch the plane to make sure it was real. One man in the crowd broke through the rope cordon and ran to check out the wings and belly. Several others kicked the tires, which were set to 200 pounds of pressure. Others stuck their fingers in any vent they could. Jan Zarakowski, the test pilot who would take the plane to the sky, said, She'll do. Easy to fly. She'll be the easiest flying plane ever built. And the final cost of that first plane? Six million dollars. But amid the hoopla, several reporters raised concerns. There was a worry about the noise. Anyone living within three to four kilometers of the plane would have their home rattled by the sonic booms. The Calgary Herald questioned if it would be even useful by the time it was ready to roll out. It said, Will the Arrow, which will not be in a squadron service until 1961, be outdistanced soon by rockets? This is the real contest the Arrow face, not against Russian bombers, which she can magnificently demolish, but against the timescale of rocket missilery, which has rapidly compressed her useful fighting life. The article added that no matter what the concerns were, there was no way the Arrow would be cut from production because, by 1957, it was one of the biggest employers in Canada. It stated, quote, 
It should be said, if only for the benefit of the 20,000 Canadians whose jobs depend on the project, that in the current defence economy, the Arrow is as safe as a church. The Ottawa citizen speculated that the jet could be used to carry nuclear bombs and Canada's involvement in building bombs. Its headline said, Avro's new jet as platform for launching H-bombs. So what overshadowed the Arrow on October 4th, 1957? Sputnik. On the other side of the planet, the Soviet Union sent Sputnik 1 into low Earth orbit, and it changed everything. Sputnik was a simple polished sphere 58 centimeters in diameter with four external antennas broadcasting radio pulses. Humanity had entered the space age. The small satellite orbited the Earth at a speed of 8 kilometers per second at a height of about 500 kilometers above the Earth. After six months, Sputnik re-entered the atmosphere, and in that time, it had orbited the planet 1,440 times. Within 12 years, humans would walk on the moon, and in 60 years, spacecrafts Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 would be traveling outside the solar system. Sputnik had also changed the art of war. Since the first atomic bomb was dropped in 1945, destructive instruments of war were transported by bombers. The arrival of Sputnik meant the nuclear bomber would be fast becoming extinct in favor of intercontinental ballistic missiles. No matter how fast the arrow could fly, it would be no match. The death of the arrow began the day it was born. A month and a half after Sputnik fell back to Earth, the Avro Arrow took flight for the first time with Jan Zurakowski at the helm. I've mentioned him a few times already, but waited to delve into his impressive resume until now. Zurakowski was born in 1914 in present-day Ukraine. As a teenager, he learned to fly gliders before joining the Polish Air Force in 1934, and he graduated a year later. When Germany invaded Poland in September 1939, Zurakowski took his outmoded PZL P7 trainer to the air against seven German planes. He damaged one before he was forced to retreat after his guns jammed. When Poland was defeated, Zerukowski made his way to England using forged documents. Thousands of Polish Air Force pilots like Zerukowski joined France and England to fight the Germans. Zerukowski took part in the Battle of Britain in 1940 before he was reposted as a flight instructor. Following the war, he remained in Britain to train pilots because he was considered to be one of the best aerobatic pilots in the United Kingdom. He would fly 30 different types of planes, and following the war, he moved with his family to Canada and became a test pilot for Avro in 1952. He had ice in his veins and nerves of steel, and on March 25, 1958, he was ready to make history at 9.53 a.m. when he took the Arrow on its first flight. It lasted 35 minutes and was problem-free as Zurakowski put the aircraft through its paces. After the flight, Zurakowski, a man of few words, said it had excellent handling and, quote, it's a beauty. Nine days later, on the Arrow's third flight, it went supersonic. On the seventh flight, it broke the sound barrier at 50,000 feet while climbing. A top speed of Mach 1.98 was reached, but engineers said it could be pushed further. And with such favorable outcomes, Avro began working on the Arrow Mark II. But dark clouds loomed on the horizon, and before the decade was over, the revolutionary aircraft would be dead. The Avro program was amazing, but it came at a very high cost. 
The jets were expensive, that's $6 million each or $63 million today. An estimated $400 million was put into diverting funding from other military programs. Sputnik rewrote the book on nuclear warfare and while the Avro Arrow was one of the fastest jets in the world, other countries like France, the United Kingdom and the United States were already developing their own comparable jets and the Avro Arrow had another enemy, politics. In 1948, Liberal leader Louis Saint Laurent became Prime Minister and Canada underwent a transformation. Under his watch, the Trans-Canada Highway, St. Lawrence Seaway and Trans-Canada Pipeline were all initiated. Canada took its first steps towards Medicare and the creation of RRSPs and a strong social safety net during this time as well. The Liberal Party had governed Canada since 1935. Progressive Conservatives were led by the dynamic John Diefenbaker. He had a fiery speaking style and he was very magnetic. Thousands would attend his rallies around the country and on June 10, 1957, he won the election and became Prime Minister of Canada with a minority government. Government spending had increased since the end of the Second World War and now in power, Diefenbaker looked to cut costs. Avro Arrow was firmly within his crosshairs. It also didn't help that Crawford Gordon Jr. and Diefenbaker didn't see eye to eye. Gordon was closely tied to the Liberal Party while Diefenbaker led the Progressive Conservatives. After their first and only meeting, which lasted barely 20 minutes, Diefenbaker called Gordon a rude drunk who puffed smoke in his face. Diefenbaker didn't drink nor smoke. Two of his advisors, Minister of National Defense, Major General George Perks, and Chief of Staff Committee Chair General Charles Folks, recommended abandoning the Arrow in favor of the new American-built Bomark missiles. Things got worse for Avro on March 31, 1958, when another federal election was held and Diefenbaker won the largest majority in Canadian history. On April 22, 1958, the Defense Research Board advised the government against any sort of cancellation because the Avro would be a useful weapon system for several years to come. The future of the Arrow hung in the balance and depended really on what the Russians would do next. The Ottawa Journal reported, if the Russians moved towards ICBMs, the Avro would be obsolete. If they continued with bombers, the Avro would have an impact. The newspaper stated, Such a government decision would be changed overnight if intelligent reports out of Russia provided reliable information that the Soviet Union planned to halt bomber production soon. On August 11, 1958, Major General George Perks, the Minister of National Defense, requested that the Aero program be cancelled but the Cabinet Defense Committee refused to do so. In September, Perks again put forward the request to cancel the Arrow. The request included a plan to install the Bomark missile system in Canada. The Bomark missile was the world's first long-range nuclear-capable ground-air anti-aircraft missile. Diefenbaker entered Canada into an agreement with the United States to purchase 56 Bomark missiles, which would be deployed in Quebec and Ontario. The missile system also cost less than half the Arrow program. The committee accepted the installation of the missile system, but again refused to cancel the Avro Aero program. The committee wanted to wait until a major review of the program would be available on March 31, 1959, but Diefenbaker already had his mind made. He said it was obsolete, adding, There is no purpose in manufacturing horse collars when horses no longer exist. Amid all the uncertainty though, Avro continued to work on its revolutionary plane. On August 2, 1958, the second Avro Arrow took flight and remained in the air for 75 minutes. 
Three weeks later, it hit 1,400 kilometers an hour and reached 50,000 feet. But for the government, success meant nothing. On February 20th, 1959, thousands of Avro employees went off to work, and then in a flash, everything changed. In the House of Commons, Prime Minister John Diefenbaker stood up and declared that the Avro program was dead. The decision had come down to costs, and the fact jet fighters were going to be obsolete as we entered the missile age. Diefenbaker had agreed to purchase Bomark missiles from the United States and couldn't afford to do both. Avro management was completely caught off guard. They had known the program was in jeopardy, but they did not expect a decision before March 31st. The company hoped to fly the Arrow Mark II before then and set new world speed and altitude records to gain public support. Crawford Gordon said, We have received wires from the government instructing us to cease all work immediately on the Arrow and the Iroquois program at Malton and by all suppliers and subcontractors. As a result, notice of termination of employment is being given to all employees. We profoundly regret this action, but we have no alternative since the company received no prior notice of the decision and therefore we were unable to plan any orderly adjustment. With the news of the program's demise, Avro Canada laid off 14,528 employees. There was speculation that the move was meant to embarrass the government and force it to walk back its decision, but Executive Vice President Fred Smee said there was no alternative after the program was cancelled. The Avro Aero supply chain was impacted as well, and another 15,000 people lost their jobs. The day of February 20th, 1959, has become known as Black Friday in the aerospace industry. The Aero staff were not the only ones caught off guard by the decision. The Ottawa Journal reported the House of Commons was shocked, stating, It was evident by the hush that fell over the House this morning that the members had not expected the pronouncement of the Aero death sentence almost six weeks ahead of deadline. Liberal leader Lester B. Pearson called for a complete review of defense policy, stating, quote, Where are we going from now on this vital matter? General Charles Folks, chairman of the Canadian Chiefs of Staff, blamed the cancellation of the program on high costs and the lack of foreign orders. He stated, Therefore, because of these reasons, it is now possible that we may have to abandon the policy of developing and producing special Canadian equipment for the limited requirements of the Canadian forces. Diefenbaker issued a statement on that day where he again said the arrow was obsolete. He said, By the middle 1960s, the missiles seemed likely to be the major threat and the long-range bomber relegated to supplementing the major attack by these missiles. This decision is a vivid example of the fact that a rapidly changing defense picture requires difficult decisions and the government regrets the inevitable impact of it upon production, employment and engineering work in the aircraft and related industries. Stephen Baker added, The examination had been made in light of all information available considering the probably nature of threats to North America in future years, the alternative means of defense and the estimated costs. The conclusion is that the development of the Arrow should be terminated now. An attempt was made to provide the completed Avro Arrows to the National Research Council of Canada as a test aircraft, but the council refused it because they couldn't supply spare parts, staff, or trained pilots. Then, in a shocking decision, the government ordered the destruction of all Avro aeroplanes, blueprints, models, and designs. And many are still baffled by this. But in July 1959, the engineering marvels of their time were unceremoniously cut to pieces by blowtorches. The Victoria Times colonist reported, 
the remains were left on a concrete flight apron to be taken away and disposed of as scrap metal. Rumors swirled that Diefenbaker ordered all evidence of the plane's merits destroyed to avoid future embarrassment, while others said it was for security reasons. Some believed the CIA was involved in terminating it because it could outperform their own top-secret U-2 spy plane. Amid the destruction, a story emerged that Air Marshal W.A. Curtis had hidden an arrow away. In 1968, he was asked if the rumor was true and he said, I don't want to answer that. And while no intact, full-sized Avro arrow has ever been found, the legend persists that there is one somewhere out there in Canada. It's not easy to hide, and after seven decades, if you haven't found it, it likely doesn't exist. Full-sized working arrows may be long gone, but in 2018, one of the test models was discovered. Below Lake Ontario, a small bit of history and an engineering marvel was found covered in sediment. The official death of the arrow, much like a rock thrown into a pond, caused ripples, affected many people, and took down a politician. It is unknown if the Avro program would have been cancelled regardless of the government in charge. It was a costly endeavour during changing times, so it could have just been a matter of time. Blair Fraser of Maclean's wrote that, Unfortunately for John Diefenbaker, his name will always be tied to a death in Canadian aerospace innovation and the joy he got from it, stating, quote, Never, not even in June 1957, as Prime Minister Diefenbaker met the press with such well-earned glee as when he announced the discontinuance of our all-Canadian supersonic fighter aircraft, the Avro Aero. Charles Lynch of the Ottawa Citizen reported, I for one am convinced the program would have been carried through but for Mr. Diefenbaker's open hatred of the Avro company, which he regarded as a pork barrel operation. Diefenbaker tried to counteract this view when he stated, It was a beautiful aircraft, but I had to make in the finality that decision. When one's faced with a problem like this, there's a higher source of strength. If one doesn't have that strength, he can never bear the attacks made on him. I knew that a great industry that had been established would be weakened, but it was right to end it. But then he bought 66 second-hand voodoo fighters that could only go half the speed of the arrow, and then the Bomark missile program also hurt him. That system was met with immense criticism in the 1960s as the anti-nuclear movement grew, and that led to the program being abandoned. The Voodoo aircraft and the Bullmark purchases amounted to more than the entire cost of the Aero program, with little to show for it. Diefenbaker cancelled the Avro Aero only a month after his huge election victory, but it hounded him for the whole time he was in power and beyond. Three years after the cancellation, Conservative candidates dealt with angry Canadians, especially in southern Ontario, who spoke of the loss of the arrow. In the 1962 election, Diefenbaker saw his record-setting majority reduced to a minority government. A year later, his government was out, as Lester B. Pearson and the Liberals were returned to office. The Regressive Conservatives would not win another majority government until Brian Mulroney in 1984. By 1967, Diefenbaker was out as leader, and would spend the rest of his life until his death in 1979 as a backbencher in Parliament. The demise of the Arrow was disastrous for Avro. By the time the company closed its doors in 1962, 25,000 people had lost their jobs, and assets were sold for $15.6 million. Avro President Crawford Gordon Jr. never recovered from the Arrow's cancellation. Out of a job, he spiraled, and by 1966, 
his wealth was mostly gone as he battled alcoholism. He died in New York City of liver failure. His friends said he drank himself to death, unable to get over the demise of the Arrow. The Avro was cancelled nearly seven decades ago, but the legend has only grown since then. Pieces of the Avro Arrow have turned up over the years and found their way into museums. The Canadian Air and Space Conservancy has a full-sized replica, while the Avro Museum in Calgary has a flying replica. The nose section of the original arrow with the words cut here written on it is on display at the Canadian Aviation and Space Museum in Ottawa. In 1997, a four-hour miniseries called The Arrow was released on CBC starring Dan Aykroyd as Crawford Gordon. It garnered the highest viewership ever for a CBC program and it won six Geminis in 1998. Aykroyd said, I can see why the program was cancelled. Missiles were coming in. There was pressure from the United States not to have an aerospace program in Canada. I can't blame old Devil D for that. But where I do blame him is in the vindictive and vengeful way the planes were destroyed. That one or two weren't saved is the real black horror of the story. Paul Stevens, a producer of the miniseries, said that for decades, Avro Aero employees held reunions to reminisce about old times together. He said, You sit there in a hotel room full of white-haired men and listen to their testimony. These are people who went on to land a man on the moon, and they said working on the Arrow was the best time of their lives. There was a spirit of enthusiasm and creativity at Avro that they never felt again. You could just tell it was like the Apple Corporation of the 1950s. On January 6, 2020, CBC News announced that the original blueprints of the Avro Arrow were kept by Ken Barnes, a senior draftsman who was ordered to destroy them but kept them in storage instead. The blueprints were put on display at the Diefenbaker Canada Centre in the Touch the Sky, the story of the Avro Canada exhibit. In 2021, the National Research Council of Canada digitized and released 595 Avro Arrow reports that have been stored in their rare book room. While Black Friday was a huge loss for Canada, it was a major gain for two programs in the United Kingdom and the United States. Following the cancellation of the Arrow, thousands of Canadian engineers had to find work elsewhere, leading to a massive brain drain as they moved to the United States and the United Kingdom for work. In the United Kingdom, former Avro engineers worked on the Concorde program and developed the world's first supersonic passenger jet. The first flight of the Concorde took place on March 2, 1969. In the United States, several Avro engineers went to work for NASA. Avro's chief aerodynamicist, Jim Chamberlain, took 25 engineers with him to work on the space task group as managers and lead engineers on the Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo programs. Eventually, 32 Avro engineers were part of the program. Chamberlain proposed to NASA the creation of a lunar orbit rendezvous in the Apollo program. He also proposed the use of a lunar module to descend to the surface of the moon with astronauts inside. NASA historians called Chamberlain one of the most brilliant men to ever work for the agency. Now the Avro Arrow may be gone, but at least as Canadians we can take pride in the fact that many of our talented engineers went on to help change the world in many other ways. I hope you enjoyed that episode and our look at the Avro Arrow. Information from Maclean's Canadian Encyclopedia, the Montreal Gazette, Wikipedia, the National Post, Saskatoon Star Phoenix, Regina Leader Post, Vancouver Province, Calgary Herald, the Windsor Star, CBC, and the Nanaimo Daily News. 
This show is researched, produced, and written by me, Craig Baird, with the help of Dila Velasquez. Audio production and design by Rosalind Kufor. If this is your first time listening and you like what you heard, please take a moment and give us a five-star review to help other people find these amazing stories. And there are so many for you to sink your teeth into. If you enjoy this podcast, then please check out my other podcasts, From John to Justin, Canada, A Yearly Journey, Pucks and Cups, and Canada's Great War. We love hearing from you, so if you have a show topic you want me to cover, email me at craig at canadaehx.com or stop by my website and social media. I'll include all of those in my show notes. Until next time, I'm Craig Baird, and this is Canadian History X.